I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. Now, you haven't heard me say that for a long time, not on Sunday morning at least. Uh, This is the first major, this is the book that I've been saving myself up for. For some time, I have always felt I wasn't old enough to do it, and uh, I've come to the conclusion I'd better do it sooner rather than later. Uh, And I want to begin this morning by introducing the author of the book. I do assume that, because many of us, especially this service, are are new. We've been, we're perhaps not familiar with the Bible at all. And if we are familiar with the Bible, it's very easy for those of us who are older to assume that people know who Paul is. We just go blithely on talking about Paul's letters without taking a pause to look at who Paul is. And so there's going to be a couple of Sundays where I'm going to look at Paul from two angles. So let me begin with my text for this morning, which is in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. As we come to the beginning of this, one of the major in my mind, the major Pauline epistle, yes, even more so than Romans, which gets usually put in that category, it would be very easy, as I said, for us old-timers to assume that the younger generation know who this human author is. Maybe we think we know who he is. But I want to take some time this morning just to introduce you to this man, Paul. Acts 22 tells us that Paul was born in Tarsus, the capital of Cilicia, a city, if you think of the map of uh, Turkey and here, and then Palestine here, kind of right on that edge, that corner there, it, it was a major Greek center, center of Hellenistic culture, that is Greek culture, Refor- uh, philosophers and rhetoricians could be heard in the streets. You could be walking through the city streets and there on the corner, the guys who were studying rhetoric would be performing their rhetoric tricks and Paul would pick up some of those tricks and use them himself in his preaching. And uh, still today when we're training preachers, we, we tell them some of the tricks of those rhetors of the, that period. And the philosophers as well. Some of the mystery cults. These were a popular sect uh, at that period, and they operated there. And Paul is a Jew of the diaspora, that is, the Jews who'd been dispersed from Palestine would have been exposed to the same Greek influences that his older and more, well, once more famous uh, contemporary Philo of Alexandria was exposed. Philo was a great Jewish author and thinker. His was a decidedly Jewish upbringing, as he tells us at various points in his writing. For example, he writes to the Philippians and he says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that is a Hebrew of Hebrew origins. Uh, Later he would be very defensive of his Jewish bona fides, 
On one occasion, he was challenged, and he responded, reacted to the challenge, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. He was very proud to be Jewish. From the book of Acts, we discover that Paul was privileged. He, was, uh, uh, the, uh, he had the prized possession of Roman citizenship. In fact, his was the third generation within this family to have Roman citizenship. This amazed the Roman jailer who had had to buy citizenship. In fact, his family were privileged to have held on to it, as I've said, for three generations. That was very unusual for anybody who was not a Roman, and especially for a Jewish family. And it indicates something of the prestigious status that his family held. Luke Timothy Johnson reminds us that this prominence of his family may have been reflected in little bits we see of the personality of of Paul as we read his writings. It gave some edge to Paul's appreciation of all that he had given up for the Messiah. When you read the list in Philippians, for example, you can see the things that he had given up for the Messiah. It may also be a little bit of background to his complaint, kind of complaint, about having to do manual labor in order to support himself. Like many traveling rabbis and philosophers in his day, Paul had developed a skill that he could use in order to make money when he wasn't making money from his job, his day job as a preacher. He probably didn't make very much money at all from being a preacher in those days. And uh, you can see that uh, as he talks about, uh, he writes to the Philippians, for example, and he claims uh, self-sufficiency, He claims his self-sufficiency there. Uh, He claims that he's able to support himself. I don't complain of want. Not only that, but I'm able to share with other people. And then he writes to them and he says, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my own necessities and to those who worked alongside me. He also belonged to a very strict sect within Judaism, the Pharisee sect. He tells us this in Philippians 3, as to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He wasn't saying he was perfect, but he was saying that he kept the law. I want to explore these aspects of his life. These features that locate Paul in a particular place and time, and yet, as one of his 20th century biographers says of him, Quote, there is about Paul the same modernness as about St. Augustine. While there are many figures of the past that are unintelligible and incomprehensible to us moderns, Paul is as human as if he had just walked in off the street. His personality. He was immensely personal, uh, personal, uh, sorry, attractive personality, passionate, eager, alive, adventurous, impetuous in his writing. 
I mean, when you look at Ephesians chapter 1, if you still have it open and haven't shut it because you think you will need it, uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see it's a very, 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 very long section that's been divided. So you can see the section clearly at the left-hand column of the page. That is all one sentence. One sentence. And it never, ever gets to a conclusion. It kind of falls off the edge, if you will. Uh, He is so eager to say what's on his mind and to express himself that he just stops when he has to stop. And he drops the subject. Uh, And we'll pick something else up after that. One analysis of him notes his logic, his love of truth, his argument, his courage, his intuition, his quick mind, his quick temper, his genuine love, his impatient practicality, he likes things to be done quickly, and his unblinking realism. That writer says that he would have been equally at home in our century as he was in the first century, though we would find that we had still failed to catch up with him. The first century of our era was the great watershed of Western civilization. As the influences of Hebrew, Greek, Latin culture clashed with one another, they were to merge together through the arrival of a fourth the culture of Christianity. In other words, he brings each of these to bear on his life's mission to make Jesus Christ known. I have three points this morning. First of all, Paul and the Hebrews. Paul and the Hebrews or the Jews. He draws our attention to this at various points. I've mentioned Hebrews 3, uh, Philippians 3, a Hebrew born of the Hebrews. He was very, very aware of the history and heritage that was his. He writes about it in Romans 9. They, they are Israelites, and to them belong the worship, the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, Jesus. All the deepest assumptions and intuitions, intuitions of Christianity are Hebraic in origin. That is, they come from the Hebrews. That there is but one God comes from the Hebrews. Uh, Jews today, Muslims today, adhere, along with Christians, to the idea of one God because of the Hebrews' influence. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the almighty creator of everything that exists out of nothing. He is the King and Lord of all. He is the true and living God. Men and women were made in His image. They share something of His personality. They are the objects. Men and women are objects of the infinite compassion, long-suffering of this God and of His unrelenting purpose 
to rescue us. It was for the Hebrews that God gave special revelation. We call it special revelation. Uh, Thomas Aquinas would have called it supernatural revelation. We're saying the same thing. It was this God who formed a covenant relationship with, uh, with Adam and Eve, with Abraham, with Moses, the people of Israel then, and a new covenant through Jesus Christ. In that covenant relationship, he promised mercy and life for us. In response, he calls for obedience and worship and faith and love. It was to them, the Jews, which in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, God entrusted the oracles of God, that is the word of God. Moses was the first to be entrusted with the living oracles of God. And so the first five books of the Bible written by Moses is the foundation of all of the scripture that we hold dear. And it was these scriptures that the younger Paul was shaped by, educated in, in preparation for his life's work. Those scriptures spoke of our first parents, Adam and Eve, their fall into sin, their first promise ever spoken to Eve of a future Messiah. To Abraham, God forged a covenant of grace based on promises, promises that were required to be taken hold of by faith alone. A new covenant, as it were, a covenant of grace. In that, those scriptures, the stories of prophets and priests and kings, the festivals of Passover, tabernacles, Pentecost, all pointed forward to this better future that God had promised. And throughout Paul's life, these scriptures of the Old Testament possessed absolute authority, infallibility, and inerrancy. When you read his, his letters, he makes, and he makes an argument there, he invariably clinches the argument with a quote from the Scriptures. It is written, he says. Everything that will come, everyone, everything that will come to believe about Jesus is rooted in those Old Testament Holy Scriptures. Paul can write to the Romans, they were set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. He sees the meaning of Scripture, goes beyond the surface of the text. We find him arguing doctrine, for example, on the basis of an ambiguous collective noun, he can spiritualize the water and the rock of the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10 to say that the water represents baptism and the rock was Christ who followed them through the desert. He can allegorize the sons of Abraham in Galatians 4 as representing two things, flesh and promise. He can allegorize their mothers, two mothers representing two covenants, one pointing to the slavery of the law, which overwhelms us 
bears us down, and the other pointing to our freedom as citizens of New Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above, which is our mother. In other words, he reads the Old Testament with New Testament eyes, with Christian eyes, just as Jesus had taught his disciples to do. These speak of me, Jesus said. To read the Old Testament Scriptures with Christian eyes is the thing that removes the veil that keeps people from understanding the Scriptures. Paul argues this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The veil that covers the eye is there instituted by the God of this age who wants to blind the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the beauties of Christ, the glories of Christ. But when that veil is removed, Paul says, when that veil is removed as we put our trust in Jesus Christ, then we begin to see clearly who he is. With the lens of Christ, the Jewish scriptures nourished his faith. They pervaded his sermons. They informed his counsel when he was giving advice. And they illuminated his experience of God. So when he writes to a young minister called Timothy, he reminds him of his similar upbringing by his grandmother and mother. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Holy Scripture of the Old Testament, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, that is, breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul and the Hebrews, and the Hebrew Scriptures particularly. Then secondly, Paul and the Greeks. In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul tells the Roman church this, I am under obligation. I am indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians. He will go on to speak of his eagerness to go to Rome and visit them there, and then to go on from there to Spain to visit them in order that he might preach the gospel to the church there. But what's curious about his language is in this text, the word that he uses, it explicitly refers to an acknowledged debt. He feels some debt both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, that is, pagans. He wants to proclaim the gospel to those from whom he has benefited, whether they're Jews or pagans. Now, I said that Paul was proud of his birthplace, Tarsus. Uh, he once gave them an, un, an understated compliment that Tarsus is no mean city. I think there must have been a bit of English in there. The English always kind of understate their thing. Do you live in a nice place? Yes, it's quite nice. Did you have a good time last night? It was okay. Uh, did you have a good vacation? 
It was, a, it was nice, yes. You would say it was a good vacation, yes. The, the understate everything. Everything is understated. Paul is doing this here when he says that Tarsus is no mean city. It means really it's fabulous. It's a great place. I love growing up there. I really like that, that place. With major thoroughfares of sea and land converging, east and west meeting there, Extensive trade, making it a commercial hub. Its famous university, bringing in an influx of good ideas. The students at that university being well-respected in Athens and Rome and in the top university of the period, which was actually in Alexandria in North Africa. The city was honored by the presence of Mark Antony, Augustus, Caesar. The report that went back to Rome was that the city pursued the peaceful arts of Roman city government. They had a very good civil service looking out for the promotion of Tarsus. They were very keen to promote themselves, and so they had these various slogans that they used. The word metropolis, come and visit the metropolis of Tarsus or the temple keeper. And I think the most modern of all of their slogans, free, first, fairest, and best, make your home in Tarsus. Paul, when he was there, saw all the virtues of order and government and social discipline, and he referred to those didn't give the credit to Tarsus, but I think he saw them in practice there, and he refers to them in his writings. But above all, among the Greeks, Paul favored highly the Greek translation of the Scripture. You'll see it sometimes in books with the letters L, X, X, all in uppercase letters. I call them capital letters, but I can translate for you uppercase, uh, and it, it means the Septuagint, which means a translation by the 70, although there were 72, but who's counting? This was a popular translation among the Jews of this dispersion. So the Gentiles gave him Roman citizenship. The synagogues were scattered throughout the then known world and gave him a point of contact, and he had the Jewish, the, the, the Greek scriptures of the Old Testament. And this led Paul to say forcibly on one occasion, is God the God of the Jews only? Is not he the God of the Gentiles also? It would be Paul who would cast the vision outside of Judaism to the whole world, to the whole world. His was a global vision for a global mission to reach the whole world for Christ. And his own family reflected this. Among his wider family were folks like Junius and Lucius. He himself had a Roman name, Paulos. Others in his family had Greek-sounding names like Sosipater and Jason and Herodian. Greek would be his mother tongue. We know that he knew Greek poetry from his classical education at Tarsus. 
He quotes them. In him we live and move and have our being, Epimenides. For we are indeed his offspring, Aratus. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, also Epimenides. He was familiar with Greek philosophy. There's hints of it in his writing at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That reflects a little bit of Aristotle with an error kept out, a fourth point that isn't included because it's wrong. So he's familiar with Greek philosophy, and that opened doors of evangelism. He engages the philosophers in Athens one-to-one because he knows what they're saying and what they're thinking. He utilized their philosophy for Christian thinking and theology. At the beginning of John's Gospel, John tells us that all light and life were in the divine word from the very beginning, that is, before creation. And that this life was the light of human beings. This is how he puts it. The true light that enlightens every person that is in the world. That light is there because of the word of God, the word who would become flesh. But the most important aspect of God's, Paul's connection to the Greeks is his insistence upon the revelation of God to Gentiles through nature. It's this that the Westminster Confession of Faith calls, in its first lines, the light of nature. Paul explains this to the Romans. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, you can find your way to God through nature. You can find out true things about God. And as we'll see, the Westminster Confession of Faith will pick up some of those things that the philosophers saw. But Paul goes on from there in Romans to say, Gentiles can do by nature what the law requires. Even though they have no access to Scripture, you will find people who are moral, upright, righteous, good, kind, generous, lovely people who don't believe in God, don't believe in Christ. Where does that come from? Well, they show by doing that, Paul says, that the law has been written on their hearts, Romans chapter 2. Now, in our confession of faith, the light of nature has a, uh, a negative function, as it does in Romans chapter 1 as well. The fact that everybody has the light of nature and could feel their way at least to some aspects of God, knowledge of God, and many do, many people believe uh, in a God very like the God we believe in, Muslims do, and uh, you, you can see in a moment why that's the case. But what that does for people is it leaves them without excuse. 
Nobody can say, God didn't show me himself. It's your, you think about the universe, its size, for example. And you think about human life and existence and why it works here on this planet. How tenuous it is, and yet how jolly well productive it's been to keep us all going all this time. It points us to the reality of a being beyond ourselves. But there is also a positive function uh, in, in what people know by nature. Jesus once said this. He, he said, you know, the children uh, of God, uh, the children of this age, rather, this world, are often wiser in their generation than the sons of God are. So, if we have a congregational meeting and we want rules by which to have that meeting, we don't look in the Bible for those rules, actually. We look at rules that have been thought up by other people and have been adopted by parliaments and businesses, corporations and governments all around the world to make meetings like that go the way they're supposed to go. In other words, that's part of God's common grace or general revelation, and it's available to everybody. Uh, Our confession puts it like this. There are aspects even of worship. What would that be? When to have it. When it's light. Before we had light, before we had electricity. Uh, And and so on. I, I need to get through this very quickly, so I'm going to just drop that. There are elements of worship and church government which are common to human nature, nations, and societies. Similarly, they inform all people of morality as they frame their lives according to the light of nature. Chapter 10. Even these things that people know by common sense can determine the bounds of Christian liberty. You're free to do what you want. But it really would not be a good expression of Christian freedom to do what you want, to arrive in church but naked. I do urge you never to do that. In other words, we we know that. We just know that instinctively. That would not be the thing to do, don't we? Uh, So we learn that. The Greek philosophers also gave us language that could be harnessed and repurposed to render intelligible some of the harder ways to think about God as God is. We talk about God's simplicity. That idea came from the Greeks. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it reads like this. There is but one, only one, one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, 
incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. All of that's in the Bible, but the words are words drawn from philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. And the framers of the Westminster Confession knew that. In his public ministry, he uh, borrowed techniques from the Stoic teachers, imagining imaginary dialogues, for example, in his writing and probably in his talks as well. Rhetorical questions. That's a technique, a a rhetorical technique. Using irony. Sometimes the technique of startling the crowd by, by saying something that you wouldn't expect them to say and to say it very forcibly. I think of when he's writing to the Galatians in chapter 5 because there've been, there are this, there's these people in the church there in Galatia who are trying to impose uh, um, uh, they're trying to circumcision as a replacement for baptism or as well as baptism or pre-baptism or whatever. They're trying to circumcise everybody, get everybody to circumcise themselves and Paul is really cross or at least he comes across as cross or he makes us think he's crossed by using a rhetorical device which we use sometimes in preaching. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, literally let the knife slip. That wasn't a very nice thing to say, was it? But you know that he was not happy and it got your attention and you'll remember it from now on. So Paul is utilizing then these things. He borrows words from the Stoics. The word conscience, that that comes from the Stoics. It's an inner awareness of a moral law by nature. Self-sufficiency, meaning an inner independence of circumstances. That was a Stoic word. I mean, he deeply attacks the Stoics for their the view of fate rather than providence, of the futility of the world and of the idea of noble despair. You know that they committed suicide a lot. Um, He he abandons that. But the, the other language that he borrows from them is the language of the deep things of God. So he would utilize these words and, and put them in Christian terms, clothe them with Christian meaning. Even the word mystery itself, he takes up and repurposes in order to use it to help us understand what God is doing in the gospel. And in all of these things, we're told, Paul became all things to all men that by all means he might save some. When it says all things to all men, there's no accommodation there to error or evil. No muting of truth to get an audience. While at the same time he recognizes that all truth is God's truth. 
The scientist who is seeking to understand the universe and how things work in the universe is really looking to think God's thoughts after him. And everything that is true and righteous and beautiful come from God. Well, the last thing is Paul and the Christians, and this is going to be the briefest. His relationship with Christians did not start well. Paul is very honest. Galatians 1, you know how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 1 Corinthians 15, I persecuted the church of God. 1 Timothy 1, I formerly blasphemed, persecuted, and insulted Jesus. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed. In Acts 22, he says, I persecuted the way, that was the first title for the church given to to them by their enemies, the way, the people of the way, I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Later in Acts 26, he admits to King Agrippa, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only shut up many of the saints in prison by the authority of the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Why did he do this? Because he was zealous for the law. He found no place for Jesus in the law. Jesus' death by crucifixion meant he should be regarded as cursed by God because the Scripture said everyone hanged on a tree is cursed. So Christ crucified meant for Paul the Jew what it meant for all the Jews since that. It meant a stumbling block that prevented him and prevents them from seeing Jesus as their Messiah. Paul did not investigate Christianity. Instead, he persecuted it. He did not investigate who Jesus was, but Jesus sought him. His call came to to Paul unsought. Here's how he puts it. God was pleased to reveal his son to me or in me. It could go either way there. Probably meant to be both. He appeared to him, but also the appearance had an interior, worked an interior change in Paul. He saw the resurrected Lord. He understood that all salvation was all of God. And by the grace of God, That is by God's unmerited favor. God showing us kindness when we don't deserve it. We deserve something bad from him and he gives us something good. So Paul can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's captivated by this notion, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. 
He could call himself the chief of sinners, but he could rejoice in the mercy of God that was great in love and who's shown kindness towards him. And from the church that he had persecuted, he enjoyed the time, the 15 days he spent with Peter, James, and John. We're not told what they talked about. We do know that they didn't talk about the weather. And he learned a lot from them there. He received from them perhaps the communion services we have it. I I received, this is what I received, that the night of which Jesus was betrayed. Paul was grateful to Jesus for what he had. The God had revealed to him that nothing is unclean in and of itself. He offers his own opinion in in Corinthians. He He offers what he's heard from the Lord, and he offers his own opinion, but distinguishes between those. And he even gives us a quote from Jesus that we find nowhere else in the Gospels. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we've looked at this man, Paul. You You may not be a Christian this morning. And you think, what's all that been about? That's a good question. Paul would have a very pithy answer. I don't. All I would say is this. You haven't done worse than Paul did. You haven't been as bad as Paul was. You are no way as far from Jesus as Paul had been. And if God can save Paul, God can save you. He can save you. His love goes to the uttermost and the guttermost that he draws us to himself. And you can find that for yourself this morning. If you just ask him, Lord, show yourself to me. Lord, save me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your servant, Paul, who has served the church in giving us 13 letters, uh, of which Ephesians is one. We thank you that you took him from darkness to light, And for out of the power of evil to the power of God. From being our enemy to being our brother. And we pray that today, Lord, you would do a miracle in our hearts. As we seek to imitate Paul the way he did Jesus. We ask in his strong, Jesus' strong name. Amen.